We're in our second uh, week in our series that we've entitled Exploring Ecclesiology. And last week, uh, we spent a lot of time looking at uh, the basics about what a church is. A lot of information was given. In fact, uh, some of you said that uh, you were unable to keep up with the notes, and uh, we've put all those notes on our website, www.villagebible.org, uh, are there, the definitions and all those things that some of you said you weren't able to keep up with. Uh, they're there for you to uh, print off and have. And uh, last week was an important week. It was a different type of message, but it was an important message because if we want to be the church that God wants us to be, then we need to know what God desires for the church as a whole. If uh, I want to be a good husband, I can't just look at my here and now and say, how does Tim Bedall be a good husband or a father? I have to look at what God's word says about all fathers and all husbands and then take that and apply it and those principles uh, to my life. And that's what we did last week. We looked at a whole, looking grammatically. What does uh, the word church mean? It's important that we understand what this, uh, this terminology that we use uh, means and what it says about us. Uh, where do we fit within the whole uh, historical context of the church? Who are we and, and how do we fit into all the different uh, pieces of that grand puzzle of church history? Uh, then what do we need to understand organizationally? How does the church, if it is what God says it is, and it's been given a, <clears throat> a certain task, what then uh, should we do to make sure we accomplish that? What are the things that must be evident in the life of a church to accomplish the great commission and great commandment that God has given the church? And finally, what does the Bible say about it. What does the Bible say is our goal and our task that we are to have? See, we have to understand these things. We have to recognize these things. And until we do, we will go about doing our work and never knowing if we've accomplished what God has for us. And so last week was a foundational week, whereas the next weeks we'll be dealing with a lot of other subjects and, and uh, subject matter that will teach us on what it means as we look at the church. Like this week we'll be talking about what are the marks of a healthy church. If we strive to be the church that God wants us to be, what is that church? And just because we think we may have an idea of what it is, we need to go to God and His Word and find out what God's Word has to say about what makes a healthy church. And then we're going to look at the activities of a healthy church, whether it's uh, through the ordinances of baptism and communion, whether it's church membership, whether it's... um, the leaders of the church. And finally, we'll look at how are we to go out and to change the world if that is our desire. If God said we were to go and make disciples, how are we to do that in a culture that says uh, that they're hell-bent on doing anything but listening to God? And so that's what this series is all about. It's about understanding who we are and what God has called us to be. And so today we look at the marks of a healthy church. Now, if you were to ask people what the marks of a healthy church are, what are the attributes that God would say are important to any church, uh, we might get a myriad of ideas of what that uh, may be. Uh, For some, they would say, well, if you want to know if a church is healthy, look at the building. Take a look. Is is the building something uh, worth looking at? Is the building something that is well taken care of? Uh, if we want to know what a healthy church is, well, of course, then uh, the people that are part of that church would make sure that the building looks as great as possible. Still others would say, look at the budget. Uh, are these people a giving church? 
Uh, is their budget something that enables them to do lots of ministries and lots of programs that would inevitably allow for a ministry to be done? Still others would say, well, look at the staff. Where did they graduate from? Where, uh, where are their areas of ministry? Are they experts at what they are doing? A healthy church has good, solid leaders. And they would say that that's where it begins. And one that's come up rather new as I continue to read in periodicals, the use of technology. In fact, uh, Outreach Magazine, which is a huge magazine uh, for um, the idea of innovation and outreach in that, has a top 100 list that says the most innovative technological churches. And so they give this list of a hundred, and we have even some in our area that made that top hundred list uh, because of their use of technology. And so they'll look at the website and they'll say, oh, is their website up to date? Does it have all the bells and whistles? Do they use incredible PowerPoint? Do they uh, have smoke coming out of the pulpit when uh, the preacher comes up? And they'd say, that's important. And, and in some ways, yes, it is. It's important to have some of these things. Still, there's another one that would say, uh, look at a big church. It's attendance and, and with it a big campus and a big building. And if everybody's going there, if everybody's a part of that church, then it must be a church that's winning uh, the fight for Jesus Christ. If the place is packed, then, then they must be doing something right. And coming from a Cub fan, all you got to do is look at Wrigley Field. Just because it's full doesn't mean the thing that's going on is any good. And so when we ask the question, what is a healthy church? Many of us will look at all the things that, that seem to be on the outside. And yet there's another group of us who will say the healthy church is not the big church. It's not the church that has a lot of staff. It's not the church with the big budget. No, in fact, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. It's a church that's small. It's a little bitty church on the corner of a great metropolis, the one that has not allowed the infiltration of all the things uh, in the world to impact it. It's got one little faithful pastor who just in, week in and week out serves the church. It, it's small because they don't just don't let any riffraff come in. They make sure they know who's coming in and who's a part of their church. They're not into the programs. They're not into all that because they do church God's way, not the way of man. And so we see either the people that say, well, it's the big churches with all the bells and whistles. And then we also go to the minimal task of saying, you know what, maybe it's none of that. And there's a lot of that going on in the Christian world today. Uh, should the church be simple or should the church be uh, extravagant and, and extensive in its uh, pursuit of Jesus Christ? The problem is, is as we look at those things, none of those things make for a healthy church. Now, they may help our preference what we're looking for. Some people are looking for a large church. The reason why is they, they enjoy the programs. They, they want to see a full-orbed line of ministry for their family. And there's nothing wrong with that. Some people like a small church where just like at the uh, tavern at Cheers, everybody knows your name. And if not everybody knows your name, then, then it's not the right kind of church for them. And that's okay. That's why there are churches of many shapes and sizes. They may believe all the same things, but they come to it uh, in different ways through different methods. Now, the final thing that we can do when looking at a healthy church is to look at churches and to pick out the one thing that they do well. And what you'll hear is, is you'll hear my church is healthy because the preaching is solid. 
Or they'll say, our church is a healthy church because we've got a bang-up youth ministry or children's ministry. Or our church is healthy because uh, we send um, uh, just thousands upon thousands of dollars and dozens of people out to serve as missionaries. And all of that may be true, and they may be a key characteristic of a healthy church. But a healthy church is not just a church that is good at one thing. Think about for a moment if if I was to tell you that I had cancer and that this cancer was eating all throughout my body, but I was to say I am healthy because at least I can still hear. The problem with that is just because we have one key area of strength, it doesn't make us healthy. It doesn't make us well. And so what are we to do? How are we to understand if Village Bible Church is a healthy church? Now, for some who, sit, who may say, well, Tim, uh, what does it matter, really? A village is doing a good job. You're trying, and you're never going to be completely perfect. Why is this important? Because there may be a day that you're not at Village Bible Church, and then you'll have to be looking for a new church. And the question you have to ask is, where do I find a healthy church? Not a perfect church, because if the church is perfect, the second you go there, it becomes imperfect. Because that would be the only group of perfect people I know. Every church is, a, in some ways, an unhealthy church. Why? Because it's got a bunch of unhealthy sinners in it. And so we need to recognize that. But what we need to understand is, if I ever find myself looking for a church, what am I looking for? Number two, if we're going to be here at Village Bible Church for a while, what does our future hold? And how do we continue to make sure that we stay healthy? And number three, what ministries, what endeavors should we be a part of uh, that allow for health to grow, not to decline? We need to know what makes a healthy church. And to do that, we need to look at Acts chapter 2 this morning. And we're going to be looking at uh, really verses 42 through 47, a very famous passage. But I want us to stand as we read, and we're going to start in verse 36 to get a context of Peter. Uh, Just so you know, in Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come upon uh, the uh, people that are in the upper room, the apostles and and others, 120 of them uh, in in, uh, total number, are in an upper room waiting, as Jesus Christ told them to, for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And verses 2 through, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, the Holy Spirit falls upon these people and they begin to speak in tongues and great things begin to happen. And what happens is, is this event moves out into the streets of Jerusalem and Peter stands up as the representative of the group and he begins to articulate to the Jews that are there in Jerusalem. And this is what he begins to articulate. He shares about the prophet in verses 14 through 21. And then he comes to verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope 
because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently, this is Peter speaking again, that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and with many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. Father God, we come before you to a very famous passage of Scripture, one that many times I think we take for granted, a blueprint for what you say is a growing and healthy church. Lord, Village Bible Church desires that. And we know without your spirit and without your word, without the strength of our Father in heaven, we would never have it. And so, Lord, teach us today what it means to be healthy. Teach us today the things that we must relieve ourselves from so that we may be as healthy as you have called us to be. Lord, I pray that we would change areas of weakness and create opportunities for strength, not just so that people will say, look at that church, but that they will be able to see the glory of God being displayed in frail and faulty people, and yet a church that loves one another, and loves their Savior, and loves the people around them who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need your strength to do it, and we ask for it today. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. If we want to be a healthy church, there are some things that we need to have involved in our life. Now, before I get to the outline, there are two things that I think we need to make sure we understand before we get to the ingredients. Because if we just deal with the ingredients, do this, do this, do this, 
And it'll become some magic potion, a a little more evangelism, a little more teaching, a little more fellowship, and and that will make it together. But we've got to understand that uh, the Bible makes it clear in Matthew that Jesus Christ is the one that builds his church. Jesus Christ is the one that brings health and vitality to a church. It is Jesus who brings unbelievers into the church. And so we need to understand, first of all, the origin of how health is brought about. God is the one that brings health. God is the one that brings the sustenance that we need to be the church that God's called us to be. We can't just do some spring cleaning every once in a while and think that we will have a healthy church. It comes from God and God alone. But then there's a second part of that, if you will. There's a second side to that coin, and that is our involvement. How are we to partner with God in making Village Bible Church a healthy and vibrant church? The first thing it involves, write this somewhere in your outlines, is passion. It involves passion. We must be passionate about being healthy. Now, many times, if you think about it in the physical realm, very rarely are you passionate about being healthy. You just take it for granted. You feel good. Everything's working the way it's supposed to be. Uh, There's no pains. There's no problems. When do you become passionate? When things are unhealthy. Oh, I don't feel good here. And oh, my back hurts there. And and I got to go see the doctor. And I need to get this medicine and that medicine. We're passionate. We make it clear. When was the last time someone said, how are you feeling? You said, I am feeling healthy. You know, it doesn't happen. But what happens when you don't feel good? How are you feeling? I feel terrible. This hurts and that hurts. And I've got this problem and that problem. We need to recognize that passion for being healthy is a missing ingredient in our churches. Now, where do you say, Tim, do you get that in the text? Notice what the text says. It says that they, now in verse 42, they, well, who are the they? They are the ones who have just accepted Christ. The church went from about 120 people to 3,000. Now think about that for a moment. I thought it was tough as a church when we had to go to two services and all that that involved. They went from 120 to 3,000 in about 15 minutes. Where do they put the children? How do they do Awana? Who's going to pass the offering plates? In 15 minutes, 120 to 3,000. What are they going to do? I could just see incredible chaos going on. I, I wonder if they got together and said, we need to build some programs. We need to get a church building campaign going together. We need to get moving. They don't do any of that. Who's going to be our senior pastor? Who's going to do this? Who's going to... None of that is going on. The text says they continued, uh, if you uh, have an amplified Bible, it would say continue to devote themselves to. This idea of devoted in the NIV gives this idea of constancy. They were all about being devoted, a singular fidelity to what the apostles were going to tell them. They were devoted to it. They were passionate about them. There was a focus and a fervor for what? The things that made them healthy. They said, what do we need to be a part of? What does God desire for us? I want to be passionate about it. I want to be excited about it. So they continually devoted themselves, not just to the apostles' teaching, but notice what it says, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
it would go on and it would talk about these things and how, excuse me, they were played out. And so they have this focus to do church the right way, not to do church the way we want it to be. Now, I want to I wanna ruffle some feathers here for a moment uh, because I love you and, and, and because I like ruffling feathers every once in a while. I've heard a lot of people talk to me over the last couple uh, months as we have been transitioning from a one-service church to a two-service church, and I've heard a lot of people tell me where they think the services should be, how the uh, Sunday school classes should be, and, and it's all good information and good stuff. Well, I think this is where it should work here, and this is where it should work there. You know what? In the first church, all they said is, bring it on. We want it. We'll change our schedules. We want to be devoted to this stuff. We're committed to it. Now, that doesn't mean we can't have preferences, but I want, to, I want us to guard against the idea that our preferences matter. They don't matter. You think, and I, I want to speak very honestly, you think I want to preach two sermons? No. I don't want to preach two sermons. But if God calls me to preach five, he's going to make it clear, Tim, your preferences don't matter. So get up there and preach like you're supposed to. Yes, God, I will do it. Our preferences, they're not, they're not always what we want them to be. I struggle coming to this service. You want to know why? Because I don't bring my family. My family's still sleeping at home. And I get a bad attitude about that. And then my son comes and tells me, you know, Dad, you missed a great breakfast. It was wonderful. It was great. We got up and we had a little time. And I sit there and say, where was the second service when I was around? So we're bringing on a new pastor, the early service pastor. (laughs) And those that will be, no, we won't. But I want you to understand something. When the church brings in growth, when the church wants to be healthy, preferences never are the first thing. You can have them, but they're far down the list. They're important, but not that important. The next thing that we see is they were devoted, not devoted to the certain things or the certain ministries and how they were all going to work together. They were devoted to the task of being a healthy and vibrant church to the point they committed themselves to it. The second thing that they had a part of it, it was a part of their vision. It was a part of their vision. You say, Tim, where, where do you understand that? Well, this is what Jesus had taught the disciples. Remember, he says, go out into the world and make disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And so he says, okay, go and make disciples. They're in Jerusalem. They're in the upper room and the spirit of God falls upon them. Now they could have stayed there and basked in the glory of the Holy Spirit movement. And said, let's just enjoy this for a while. Let's just, let's just be consumed by this for a while. Let it be the 120. We don't want to mess this thing up. What if we bring the wrong people in and we lose this vibe or feeling that we have? But they had a vision. And the vision was, is it led them not just to stay in the upper room, but to go to the city that they were in. And so they find themselves, their, their little Holy Spirit party going on, uh, begins to work its way out into the, into the city. Now they could have just said, you know, hey, we're just doing our thing and, and don't, bo- don't worry about us. Don't, uh, don't let us bother you. But they don't do that. Peter stands up and he articulates to the people, why is he doing that? Because he's going. And he's preaching. Why is he preaching? To make disciples. To the point he articulates all that he needs to. And the people say, what must we do? 
And he says, you need to be saved. You need to get baptized. And you need to do this and, and so that you can be added to the number of the church so you can be a part with us. Come and join us. And then they say what they do is they teach them more, it says. They fellowship, they pray, they break bread together as they did at the Last Supper. Why do they do all this? Because I believe with all my heart, the apostles knew. While they didn't know everything, they knew it was go time. This is what Jesus was talking about. Now it was time to live it out. How do we create a vision for a healthy church? We've got to look no farther than our vision statement. Now, I don't know the last time we've talked about our vision statement, but it's an important thing because it is the, the if, if you will, roadmap to how we believe we can become a healthy church, just like in the book of Acts. Now, many of you probably don't know it. To our shame, you don't. We need to find ways for you to be able to know your vision statement. But this is the vision statement. Village Bible Church desires to be a family of growing believers committed to glorifying God by reaching our world with the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our vision. Now you say, well, where did you come up with that? I remember we spent a lot of time working on on that uh, phrase. I know a couple of us in this room were a part of that. It was about five or six years ago. We put some different thoughts on on a whiteboard and we began to draw this thing out and say, what is is most important? And then even just a, a couple of years ago, we added a couple words to that. I believe it was Pastor Scott said, there's nowhere in the vision statement that speaks about glorifying God. And he was exactly right. We were missing that component. And so we added that we are committed as a people to glorifying God. Now you say, Tim, why is that so important? The reason is, is we must have a vision for health. We must have a plan for vitality. If we just think health is going to come our way, we are sadly mistaken. We must have a plan of attack by which that takes place. So we need to be passionate and we need to be visionaries when it comes to that. Now that brings us now to the part of the scripture where we see the components that are brought. In Acts, the church gives us four key marks to a healthy church. The first one we want to look at this morning, if we desire to be healthy, is that we need to build on the right foundation. The church needs to be built on the right foundation. Now, what I want to do with each of these points is to look at them from a scriptural point of view, and then I want to apply them just as the New Testament individuals would have applied them, and then I want to look at how village sees itself living out that certain plan through the vision statement that we have. So the first one is the church that is healthy is built on the right foundation. Now this church in the book of Acts was built on the right foundation, but what was it? What was it that started this church in the right direction, put it in the right spot to be able to head in the right direction? Well, any home that you build, any business that's created, any movement that you're wanting to start, all have to start on the right foundation, whatever it is. Sports teams go to great lengths to finding out who their foundational players and components are going to be. And they'll say, if you don't have the right quarterback, it doesn't matter what you have on a football team, you need the right quarterback. He'll talk about if you don't have the right pitcher starting pitching, it doesn't matter how good at defense you'll be, the foundation is missing. And yet, just like in sports teams and businesses and building of homes, the foundation is crucial. 
And the scripture tells us where this foundation is found. Now, it's not found in verses 42 through 47. It's found in the message that is preached beforehand. Peter gets up and he preaches this message. And this message is an evangelistic message that involves a defense of Jesus Christ and the writings of the apostles. It is a, um, uh, a call out to the people who had not understood those things and who they themselves, Peter said, crucified Jesus. So there's a level of conviction there. And then there's a call, there's an exhortation to respond in the right way. But what is that foundation? What is the foundation that we as a church must have? Ephesians chapter 2, write this passage down just very quickly. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 tells us this. It says in verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. It's talking about the church. Remember, that was one of the metaphors we looked at. Well, how is it built, this household of God? It is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. There's a foundation that's being built. The foundation involved the apostles, it involved the prophets, and it involves Jesus as that first block, that chief cornerstone. The whole weight of the building finds itself there. And so the first thing we need to look at is how were the prophets involved? Because it involved the prophets. Notice verses 22 through 35 of Acts chapter 2. He goes and he says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was accredited by God to you through many wonders, signs, uh, many miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourself know. Now he articulates, he says, you know this Jesus. Jesus is it. Jesus is our foundation. Jesus is the selling point. Peter doesn't say, hey, look at what we've got as a church. 120 people loving one another, 120 people gathered together uh, and having all these signs and wonders done. None of that. He starts out and he says, hey, I want you to know something. You need to know about Jesus. Everything about us is Jesus. Jesus is all that we're about. And we need you to understand something about Jesus. Jesus is the one who is the Messiah. Now notice what he says a couple different places. First of all, at the beginning of the message in verse 17, he gives a uh, meditation or a word from the prophet Joel. And he says, I want you to know something. This isn't something that just happened out of the blue, but the prophet Joel, our prophet told us that this stuff would happen, and we are a fulfillment of that. Later in the text, he speaks about David in verse 25. He says, even David spoke about him. And so the foundation was built in the Old Testament. Peter opens the Old Testament, if you will. He didn't have a copy of it, but he articulates it to the people, and he says, this Jesus and all that you're saying is being fulfilled of what the prophets foretold about. The prophets were all about Jesus, just as we're all about Jesus. And so maybe you didn't see Jesus as the Messiah, but the prophets did. They saw Jesus, even they weren't sure who he was or what his name would be, that when they uh, wrote about him, Jesus was the complete fulfillment of that prophecy. It begins with the prophet, which means it begins with the Old Testament. The, the whole work and, and um, articulation of what Jesus has done doesn't begin in the book of Matthew. It begins in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, God says, I'm going to send an offspring of the woman who will crush the head of Satan, but he will strike at the Savior's feet. Genesis chapter 3 is the great advertisement of Jesus Christ. 
And the prophets and the patriarchs and everybody before that keeps pointing to Jesus. He's coming. He's coming. Get right. Get right with God. Stop going to sin. Stop pursuing the gods, the worthless gods of your neighbors. Pursue God. Why? Because his Savior is coming. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so the prophets articulated time and time again that Jesus was the foundation that we should build. The second thing that we see is it's built on that person and work of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says uh, in this message. He articulates, brother, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb, verse 29 here, says, is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew what God had promised him. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus, and we are all witnesses to the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now notice something that I love about this message. Number one, it elevates and exalts the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is it. The message again in the person of Christ is exalted. It isn't this foundation that says, well, this is what the prophet said, but it really doesn't matter. It says exactly what the prophet said and what has taken place. Jesus, the one who was crucified, is Lord and Christ. But there's a conviction statement there. And the conviction statement is, whom you have crucified. Peter, I love it. He was not into warm and touchy, uh, soft and touchy, feely messages. How would you like it if I got up and, and stood up and preached this message and said, you know what? The reason why Jesus died on the cross is because you killed him. You killed him. You say you're God-fearing people, but you killed Jesus. That's what, Je- that's what the first sermon at Pentecost was all about. It convicted the people. They were a part of it. Here is God incarnate, Jesus Christ. And he comes and he lives out and fulfills what the patriarchs say. And what do we do with him? We don't hold parades and all these great adventures for him. We kill him. We sin against him and we kill him. Just as Jesus said when he looked out Jerusalem, you've killed the prophets. And one day the people of Jerusalem would kill Jesus. There's conviction in that message. There's a call that even though Jesus is pure and holy and great to be exalted and at the right hand of the Father, we see that there's conviction with that message. The next thing that was involved would be the preaching of the gospel. What's the preaching of the gospel? The euangelion. The gospel means what? Good news. What's the good news? That you killed Jesus? No, the good news is that though we sin, though we put the Son of God on a cross hang him on a tree, that he would die a criminal's death. Though we sin against God and then do all those things when Christ comes to be near with us, even though we behold the glory, the glory of the one and only, instead of worshiping him as God, we find other things in the world to worship. In light of all that, the good news is Jesus has not destroyed us. God hasn't been done with us. But God, because he loved the world, sent his son to die. Why did he send them to die? Not to convict the world, 
but to save the world. That's the gospel. And so the gospel is seen in Peter's message when it is articulated in verse 37. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God who God has made Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What if the answer would have been nothing? You've sinned. It's over. You messed up. And now you just wait for the wrath of God. I remember there were days when I was a little boy when I messed up and I I was hoping for some good news from my mother. But you know what my mother would say? Wait till your father gets home. That's not good news. Because when dad gets told what I did from mom and from her point of view, it never worked out well for me. And so all I had was fear and trepidation of the wrath of my father. What if Peter said that to the people? If he just said, you know what, it's too late. Sorry, you're out of luck. Maybe next time when you get an opportunity to live on earth, you'll change the way you live. That's not what happens. Notice what the answer is. Here's the good news. He says, there's an opportunity. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The good news is, is even though we've sinned, even though we have put Jesus Christ on the cross because of our sin, there's a second chance. And that's the preaching of the gospel. The final thing that we see is that it involves a proper response. In verse 40, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Sounds like a guy that would be at O'Hare Airport on a soapbox screaming, doesn't it? And yet this is the message that the first church preached. It says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. What's the response? Number one, it's accepting the message. It's accepting the message. Number two, it involves being baptized. Now, baptism doesn't bring you to salvation, but is the public identification. What has gone in my heart, I want to display to everybody around. And finally, they were added to the numbers. The idea of church membership. These are the components of what a convert, a fully functioning convert or disciple of Jesus Christ is all about. What it is is accepting the message. We're told to go out and make disciples. How do you make disciples? Jesus tells us. We go and make disciples by proclaiming the gospel to them, by baptizing them, and by getting them into good, strong, healthy churches. That's the process. You can't just have evangelistic crusades and just send people on their way and say, good luck, make sure you accomplish the things that God wants on your own. So what does this mean for us? If we want to be built on a foundation, if we want to be a healthy and vibrant church, it starts, first of all, with Jesus Christ. It has to begin and end with Jesus Christ. And so our preaching has to be involving itself with Jesus Christ. It has to center itself on that. It has to look at what the prophet said about Jesus. It has to look at the gospels and what it says what Jesus did. It has to look to the epistles and the letters to point back to what Jesus did. Why? Because if we are here just to uh, preach about all these other things, then we miss out on the foundation. I drive to work, and, and I, I got to be honest with you. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to to write this guy that I listen to preach every week. I, I heard a twenty. I had to go because it was time for church. Twenty six minutes about global warming this morning. 
26 minutes. Now he tells the people at the beginning of the sermon to open their Bibles. I kid you not, I do not exaggerate with you once. He quoted USA uh, Today. He quoted uh, uh, the Wall Street Journal. He quoted NASA about a hundred times. He quoted three other books. And he tells these people to open their Bibles and never does he say one thing from the Bible or reference it. That is not a foundation that is going to build a healthy church. What it creates is a bunch of people who get angry at our government, who get angry that the world is either on fire or cooling down, whatever aspect you have. And while that may be important, it does nothing for the spiritual vitality of a church. We have to be founded on the word of God because the word of God is where we find our foundation You show me another book that has Jesus so clearly articulated and comes from God, we'll preach that one too. But the only one I know of is the 66 books of the Bible. So we're going to preach it and we're going to proclaim it until Jesus calls us home. This is what Village Bible Church is all about. You say, well, how does that fit into the, into the vision statement? We desire to be a church of what? Growing believers. What does that mean? Number one, it means that we need to be growing. What that says to us is that if you think that you have accomplished what you're going to in your life as a believer and you don't need to do anything more, you are not in the vision of Village Bible Church. I don't want anybody here who's retired in their spiritual life. Why? Because that's not the vision. I didn't say I don't want people here that are retired. I said in their spiritual life. Some people's eyebrows just went up. We love our retired people, but I don't want any retired people here in their spiritual life saying, you know what? It's time to go sit in some Dell Webb community of spirituality and let everybody serve me and never serve the church. And you know what? It doesn't take an old person or a more mature person to be retired spiritually. Some of our 18 and 25 year olds and our 30 year olds are retired spiritually. We want people that are hungry for the word of God. We are going to be in your face about being hungry for the word of God. Why? Because if we don't have that in our people, we don't have a proper foundation. It doesn't work. It will never accomplish what God wants. And so we have, uh, we have uh, messages from the pulpit that preach God's word. We have Sunday school classes for young and old that preach God's word. We've changed the curriculum a couple of years ago uh, because we wanted our children to have a deeper understanding of God's word. But you know what that meant? It meant giving up some of the nice pictures that the other group had. It, it took away some of the cool crafts that they had. And we said, well, that's great. That's wonderful. Crafts and, and, and cool pictures are great. We want to make sure our foundation isn't that when we stand before God, well, our kids may not be saved, but they had cool crafts, God. We want it to be the word of God. Enough of that. Number two, it involves, it calls for sacrificial participation. Notice what the text says. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That apostles' teaching meant all that I've just articulated to you. The teaching that Jesus Christ had shared with them, and it involved the fellowship. Now, let's stop there. This word fellowship, of course, is the Greek word what? Koinonia. Okay, for the three people that knew that, koinonia. This idea literally means it has a lot of different definitions of the word, but literally it means to be together, to participate together, to have things together. This idea of oneness, koinonia, fellowship, togetherness is going on. This idea of sharedness is this idea of koinonia. In fact, this word is seen three different times 
in three different ways in our text. Notice what it says. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. How did they do it? It says all the believers in verse 44 were together. It says selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together. It says they would later in that text, they broke bread in their homes and ate together participation together. That's what koinonia is all about. You can't have koinonia and be apart from one another. And so the thing that they involve themselves in is not just coming and listening to the apostles teach and filling their heads with things, but it involves something else. And that was a sacrificial participation. Well, what did that involve? It involved opening up three things. First of all, it means opening up your hearts. It means that this participation involves us opening up our hearts. Notice verse 44. It says the first together that we need to understand. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Now, let's remember, 120 to 3,000, and it says they were all together. Well, that's hard to do first and foremost, so that's why they went to the temple, the largest buildings that were there in the known world at the time. But we also recognize that not only were they together, but they had all things in common. What in the world does that mean? Does that mean that they all rooted for the same sports team? Does that mean they all had similar jobs? Does that mean they all had similar sized houses? All things were together? No. What was important wasn't the outside external things, but what they had in common was what? The foundation, Jesus Christ. That supersedes everything. We don't have a church that is built on people that just live in a certain area or in a certain style home, or or we don't have a church that's built for the executive. We don't have a church that's built for the blue collar or the white collar. We don't have a church for the north side or the south side. We don't have a church for any of that. Why? Because we don't have to have those things in common to be able to fellowship together. The one thing we have to have common is the same Father in heaven and the same Savior. It involves having our hearts being opened up. Well, to be able to do that, what must happen? For us to open our hearts, what must take place? It means we have to be spending time with one another. So if we want fellowship in our church, we need to open ourselves up to that. Nowhere in the Bible, in fact, the word saint, I shouldn't say nowhere, the word saint is used one time in the singular form in the New Testament. Every other time, it is used in the plural. God deals with people in community. He deals with people in community because that's what he's called us to. We are not to be solitary Christians. We are not to be hermits. We are to be together in community with one another. Why? Because we have our hearts to open up. We, we need to share with people. What does that look like? It means we have to let people into our lives. It means we have to tell people our goals and our failures, our temptations and our troubles, our failures and our victories. That means I have to be open with you. That means I have to articulate some of the things that I've done that maybe I'm ashamed of. Why do we do that? Because the Bible says we are to confess our sins one to another. The Bible says that your job is to encourage me and to hold me accountable. And sometimes that's not fun because sometimes it says, hey, Tim, You know, come on, fix it. Get it right. Stop turning to that sin and follow Jesus Christ. For us, it also means a bearing with one another. How do we do that? By listening and encouraging and loving when someone comes and shares their issues or struggles. Why do we do this? Because God has not called us to be by ourselves. He has called us to be together. We have to have our hearts open to one another. 
The next thing we have to open up are our hands. Notice verse 45, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. The next thing we see involved in fellowship is they gave to one another. The biggest part here isn't what they gave or how they gave it. The thing I want you to write down in your notes when it comes to opening our hands is that the people of God and the purposes of God are more important than my possessions. That's all I have to say about that. The people of God and the purposes of God more important than your possessions? If not, then we're building a unhealthy church. Now, does that mean, please hear me, does that mean you need to sell your house tomorrow and give it to someone else in the church? No, this wasn't forced. But what this was, was an outpouring as they worshiped and as they uh, enjoyed God and the favor of God and his people, they began to look at their lives and say, do I need all that I have? Do I have to have everything that is in my house? Or are there things that I can give up? Is is there a part of my paycheck that can go and, and serve someone else better than it can serve me? What does it gain me to have this extra stuff if my brother or sister in Christ who's opened up their heart and said they're really struggling financially, can I not help them? Can I not serve them? We will never open our hands until we open our hearts. That's hard to do. A couple years ago, I shared this a couple weeks ago with a small group retreat one of the most incredible acts of love I've ever been a part of. I am a prideful person, especially when it comes to money. I don't want to tell people I don't have money. You guys look at me and say, of course you don't have any money. We look at you. We know what you got in your wallet. That's fine. I have any money. And what happened was is the, uh, I forget what it was on the stupid van that went out, but something, uh, some major thing went out on the van. And it was one of the, one of the, uh, it was the transmission. That's what it was, the transmission. And, uh, and I remember that it was in January. For, for catering, January is the absolute worst time. I tell Amanda, we don't eat, we don't drink, we don't breathe in January. We're coming around the bend trying to get back to summer. We're thinking warm. So every once in a while, you'll see me in shorts in January. That means money's low and I'm thinking summertime. Thinking barbecues, okay? And we didn't have money. We needed a car. We needed the car. And I went to small group and I said, I'm tired of the small group. I don't want to serve in the small group. I lead. And what does God do? He blows out my transmission. Okay. All upset. And Amanda says, well, maybe just ask the people to pray. No. I'm not going to ask those people to pray. It's not what the leader does. She says, I want you to ask the people to pray. I said, okay. So all I said was, is that to my small group, we have a financial issue. Would you pray? And I walked out, did not even know it because I was too busy eating the snack than uh, watching my Bible. And in my Bible was a check for the exact amount of money that it cost to fix the transmission. And I sat there and said, praise God. And what it was, was it was the group had gotten together and they had given someone money and one person wrote the check and it came from all of them. They said, don't ask us any questions. Here's the money. We don't open our hands until we open up our hearts. You want to start sharing your needs? God will meet them. He will meet them. But we need to open our hearts to one another. And that means then when we hear something is brought up, friends, you're going to leave this place today and someone's going to tell you about the struggle that they're having. And the question is you can say, I'll pray for you and bid them good day. Or you can open up your hands and say, how can I help? How can I serve? We had a man come a couple weeks ago after church 
And uh, he was looking for money, benevolence. And, uh, you know, we have a whole benevolent package that we give out, and I think it's right, it's wise. And uh, I couldn't find Keith, the brain trust of this whole organization. Couldn't find him, so I didn't know where any of this stuff was at. And this guy really needed money. And I sat there and I said, well, uh, you know, we, we have a meeting tomorrow. We can get you some money tomorrow. And he says, I, I need money for groceries. And I prayed. I said, Lord, is this guy telling me the truth? And the Lord really laid on my heart. He was. And I said, but Lord, <laughs> the church doesn't have any cash on hand. And I can't write a check for the church. And, and, uh, and you know, we can give him something on Monday. But the, and he says, why do you keep saying they in the church and all that? Give the man some money. And I said, but the, the church is supposed to do that. Not me, God. And so the guy said, that's all right. He goes, we'll, we'll figure out something for Monday. And God just grabbed me and said, give the man money. And so I said, okay, Lord, I, I'll go. I go to the ATM. And I said, Lord, how, how much is this? Let's see here. Okay, to get uh, Aldi. They got to shop at Aldi. Uh, <laughs> okay, they can eat. There's five of them. They can eat for about $18. That'll take care of it. And I look, and there's nowhere on the, on the ATM that says $18. And I will tell you, the Lord seized my heart. It was a heart attack or the working of God. And I will tell you, and not to boast about anything, but God, against my own goodwill, said, you need to give a whole lot more than that. Overwhelm him with my love. What if I looked at you, Tim, and said, you only need $18 worth of grace? We need to give. We need to open our hearts and our hands to the giving of people all that we have. But if our possessions are more than we're willing to give up, then let me tell you something. You have sacrificed participation and fellowship in the gospel of Jesus Christ on the altar of materialism. It's what you've done. And we're all prone to it, but God doesn't want it. This is what kept those people from being prone to that. Now, I will tell you, they messed up 20 years later at the end of the book of Acts. In fact, in the writings at the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church is being stingy in their giving to their brothers and sisters in Christ to the point that Paul has to send them a letter and say, wait a minute, the Macedonians in their poverty have given. Why won't you give? And so it's a constant reminder, just because they got it right in Acts 2 doesn't mean they're going to get it right all the time. Likewise, we are the same. The final thing that they do, which is important, is they opened up their homes. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. This is very simple, but it's a lost art. When was the last time you opened your home up for fellowship? When was the last time you invited some people over and just lavished upon them the love that you have? You know the reason why fellowship is no longer a big thing these days is because we are self-conscious about our own homes. Well, my home isn't this, and, and we don't have that. Who cares? Do you have a home? Do you have a structure? It may not even be yours. Most of our homes aren't anyway. They're owned by the banks or the government. What well, it all depends on what you're doing right now. Okay? There, there, there are homes. And it isn't the structure that takes care of the fellowship. It's what happens inside those places. That's why small groups are so great. Because what they do is they get you out of this room. They get you out of this place because we act a certain way in, in this building. It's like right when we start coming up to the brick of this building, we change who we are. Now it's time to turn into a Christian. 
In the parking lot, things change. You know, uh, it's amazing. Uh, I've, I've followed a couple times a family. We come in about the same time, and there's a certain family in our place. God bless them. The devil's beating them up until they hit the driveway. And then all the kids straight up straight and sitting in their chairs. It's church time. And I watch them the whole time. They're barking at each other and everything. God bless them because it's someone else besides the Bedalls. But nonetheless... We get this idea that we have to be a certain way. And you know what happens? You move people into homes. Let them spend time with one another. They'll start getting real. That's why small groups, that's why we're so excited that almost 200 people are involved in small groups right now. Because we want them to be a part of it. Let's move on. Number three, it's active in its adoration of God. The third mark of a healthy church is our worship of God. These people love to be together. Why? Why would they want to be together? Because listen to me, it was an opportunity to talk about Jesus. The fellowship that they had wasn't, oh, I'm going to gather together and I'm going to talk with so-and-so from church and and we're going to talk about the football game the other day. We're going to talk about how the loss of Brian Urlacher uh, hurts the Bears. That's not what they got together about. They got together. They continually devoted themselves to fellowship so they could talk about Jesus. This is what Jesus is teaching me. This is what I shared with my coworker at work today. This is what I've done. Hey, hey, this is where I'm struggling with sin, but I'm so glad that even though I struggle with sin, that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for my sin and I can walk in victory. These are the things they talked about. Well, when would they do it? When would they talk about Jesus and live out Jesus with each other? First of all, it began when they communed at the Lord's table. This idea, the breaking of bread. There's a particular article, a definite article there to the breaking of bread. This is different than the breaking of bread that happened in their homes. There was a specific meal that was being eaten together. That's the Lord's Supper, communion. It's the gathering together where we as a body gather and share a meal together. It reminds us of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, why would that be such an important thing? Because these people understood what it meant when they came together that they were to confess sin. You read some of the early church fathers and they would articulate that the preaching would never get, you never get to the preaching because the public confession of sin would take so long. That people would rise up and say, before we take this bread, to eat this bread and drink this juice, let me tell you what, what I've done. Let me tell you how I've broken the covenant that I have with God. And yet I'm about to partake of his faithfulness to me. Look at all the sins that I've had, but look at the faithfulness of God. Communion for us is the most sacred, most holy time that we have in a church. It isn't when we sing. It isn't when we preach. It is when we gather around the Lord's table. And I understand that culture is different, that it'd be very rare for a church to stand up and confess sin, but we need to realize that that is an opportunity for us to gather together and in one voice and in one step say, we are sinners, we are in need of grace, and God, you are so faithful to meet us in our time of need. And so when people say, well, I'm glad we don't have communion every week because that would become too ritualistic or too rote, I say, hogwash. You watch football every Sunday and you're okay with it. You watch your favorite show every week and it doesn't become ritualistic. And yet, faithfulness of God and our sinfulness, if we do it too much, it might become rote. Baloney. Let's rejoice when the times come when we have communion. Let's rejoice and remember that we are sinners. 
And that our conversation about Christ needs to articulate those types of things. The next thing that they have is when they did it when they prayed. They gave God the glory and the honor when they prayed. Notice what it says. It says the prayers. Again, there's a definite article in the original. It wasn't just to praying, but to the prayers. And so when we call on God, we need to bring God adoration. We need to bring God adoration in our prayers. Well, what does that look like? It involves all types of prayers. All types of prayers. I'm going to hit us for a second. One of the things that we need to be very careful with here at Village Bible Church is that we pray of, of the four prayers, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, the predominant amount of our prayers have been two, thanksgiving and supplication. And our thanksgiving usually is, thanks God for giving me what I prayed for last week. Now I've got a new request for you this week. Here's your job. And we forget that adoration, that we just bask in the greatness of God. And we just sit there and we are in awe of God. The scripture tells us that they were in awe. They were in awe of what God was doing. Are we in awe of those things? Do we pray in that kind of way? Do we confess sin when we see how great God is? Isaiah chapter 6, I see the Lord high and exalted. The train of his robe fills the temple. Angels are singing. And what does Isaiah do? He praises God. He sees the adoration of God. And then he says, for I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. A proper adoration leads to a proper confession. And yet we as a church are so focused in on, thank you God for giving me this. And God, will you give me some more of that? And it's not just us, it's our American culture. God becomes Santa Claus instead of the God that we are called to worship, whether he gives us what we want or not. It involves all types of prayers. The people that were involved in the first church prayed in, in, as individuals, in small groups. They prayed corporately. And one thing that I get concerned about is when I hear that we're not a praying church because we don't pray a certain way all the time. We are a praying church. People say we don't do enough corporate prayer. I don't know. We have 20 some small groups that are meeting together corporately, gathering together to pray. Was the 120 not enough? The 3,000 had to pray? God says if two or three of you are gathered together, there I am in your, in my name. You're praying in my name. I'm there with you. Well, I think all our small groups are two or three or more. That's corporate. That doesn't mean that we as a body don't gather together and pray. We need to. But it involves all types of prayer, in all seasons of prayer. Sometimes it's praying for a couple minutes. Sometimes it'll be praying for an hour or so. Sometimes it means dedicating a day to prayer or a season of prayer. I would agree we don't pray enough. We don't pray enough. And we can pray more. The reason why is First Thessalonians 5.17 says we are to pray without. Until we get there, we're not praying enough. All right? The mere fact that I'm preaching right now and not praying shows us we don't pray enough. We need to be praying without ceasing. They did it when they came together for worship. They gathered together. Notice what it says. Every day. Say that with me. Every day. I want you to know something. This is family time. This is family time. And yet what happens is, just to give you a, a rough statistic, in our family at Village Bible Church, on any given Sunday, we are missing 150 to 200 of our active attenders and members every week. Every day they got together. 
Now you say, but Tim, you don't understand I have this going on or I have that going on. Tim, uh, you need to understand we've got Junior's basketball game and and uh, and our daughter's uh, ballet recital and, and they just happen to happen on Sundays. I learned something as a young boy that was very important for me. My dad said, if there's any sport that goes on on Sundays, you will not be a part of it. I don't care if you're Michael Jordan. I don't care. And I've learned that. And it's important. Now, I'm not trying, I please understand, I'm not trying to judge what, what God uh, has allowed. That's something that God has told me that I need to be. It's good because if I wanted to be a preacher, I couldn't be doing things on Sunday. Now, could I? But we need to be very careful. I've heard something new that, that continues to come up and I'm concerned about it. I hear that well, the church is doing too much. We need more time for just us as a family. Give me chapter and verse on that one. Seriously. I have a family with three boys and I love spending time with them. But understand this, the family is not the agent of change in this world for Jesus Christ. The church is. And so we need to be involved in it. You know, the elders spent some time a couple weeks ago and I need to be closing this thing out. But a couple weeks ago we said, you know, could we challenge our people to tithe their time? Tithe their time to the church and to involvement in Christianity. And you know what? If I was to tell you that we, uh, if we wanted you to tithe your time, that would mean somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 14 hours of your time involved in church, involved in personal Bible study. A lot of you say, you kidding me? You got an hour and a half and you're lucky you got that. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Something is wrong. Something is wrong when we say to God, you get this, but nothing more. When they gathered together, they gathered together and they said they did it with joy in their hearts. One person told me, hey, Tim, I look at the ministry update and they, and they said, we're doing way too much. There's too much going on. And I said, no, there's not enough going on. And he says, how can you say that? I said, because every time the elders deal with a sin, I've never heard of the sin happening in a Bible study. It's always by themselves. It's always in their little corner, in their little closet. So what does that tell me? If I want to get them out of the closet, if I want to get them out of the sin, then make sure they're at church. How much sinning do you do at church? I'll tell you, I do a whole lot less than I do when I'm by myself. I'm serious. And yet we say, well, you get this amount of time. A healthy church is a church that comes together and worships and enjoys spending time with one another and rejoices in that fellowship. We desire to be a family, a family of growing believers. That means spending time with one another. That family has got a job. Now, this is where I will push back on my own words. If we're just building a bunch of activities for people to be a part of, then we are wasting your time. We're wasting your time because we are a family of growing believers committed to what? Glorifying God. If we can't glorify God with our calendars, then we are missing the mark of a healthy church. Finally, it comes when we celebrate our faith together. We celebrate our faith. Notice what it says just very quickly. It says that they enjoyed the favor of all people. In verse, uh, let's see, 46, it says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Do you enjoy worshiping God? Do you enjoy being involved in worship with your people, with God's people together, worshiping together, enjoying one another, the favor of all the people? Do you look forward to uh, coming to worship? 
I will tell you many Sundays I come to church and my message isn't put together because I haven't spent time with you guys. I've been by myself. And, then, and I sit there and say, well, that won't work and that won't work. And I shake some people's hands and they smile and say, man, I, I'm looking forward to what the Lord has to say through you. And it just invigorates me. I'm excited. I need to remember that this isn't about me, but it's about you and it's about the whole family of God. Finally, it involves uh, growing through spiritual multiplication. I don't need to say much about this, but a healthy church is a growing church. Let me say that again. A healthy church is a growing church. Now, if you think that there's something wrong with that, then you need to look to the scriptures. If you're not growing, if there isn't life taking place where life is begetting life, then only death is to come. Either you have fulfilled the Great Commission, the only time you can say, well, our church isn't grow, uh, doesn't need to grow, then if we were to say that, that 500 and some, we had 500, I think it was 40 people at church last Sunday, we don't need any more. It's us 540 and no more. If we were to articulate that, then we have one of two ways to go. Number one, we can tell God the Great Commission has been complete in our area. We took care of it. The 540 are the ones that came to know Christ. That's it. That's all that Sugar Grove needs. Or secondly, that we have become lazy and lost the understanding of what God has called us to in the area of evangelization. So how do we grow? How do we multiply? There are three ways a church grows. Number one, write this down, it grows through transfer growth. How many of you have come, whether it was this year or it was 20 years ago, came from another church to Village Bible Church? Raise your hand. Okay, I did. A lot of transfer growth. Okay, is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. People need churches. And we need to make sure that we're open for that. But that's not the only kind of growth we live for. Now let me ask this this question. Uh, How many of you came through biological growth? How many of you were born here? I got a whole roll right here, I know that. That's right. The woods take care of all the biological growth that we need in this church. No. Okay, I got three little boys, sinners, who need to hear about Jesus. So you could amen that at that point. They need to hear about Jesus. Did they come to the church through uh, an outreach? No, they came to church because that's where mom and dad showed up. And they need to hear about Jesus. And so transfer growth and biological growth in and of themselves is not bad multiplication. But if you do not add conversion growth, then you are not a healthy church. Because it has to happen. And what I mean by that is there's going to be some people that transfer in who don't know Jesus. They think they do. We need to save them. There are going to be children that need to know about Jesus and we need to save them. But it goes beyond that because we're not just called to save those in our midst, but we're to go outside of that and save those who are outside of it. Notice what the text says. It says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It involves three things, this idea of multiplication. Number one, divine assistance. Who adds them? Help me with that. God, the Lord. We can't do it on our own. We can't put programs together and say, Awana plus ABFs equal conversions. Doesn't work that way. We have to pray for the Lord of of the harvest to give us that opportunity. Next, it involves daily conversions. It was happening all the time. I want you to think about this for a moment. I wonder what happened the day that a person didn't trust Christ. Do you think they wept? Do you think they said, wait a minute, what, we blew it. They were coming to Christ every day. What happened? And yet, I, I, I got to ask you a question. How many Sundays have we wept? Have we wept that a week has gone by that us as a corporate body have not led a person, a single individual to Jesus? 
When was the last time we wept about that? When was the last time after all the money is given, all the programs have taken place, and we've done all the spiritual gymnastics, and not one person has come to the saving knowledge of Jesus? There are a lot of churches that will say they're healthy, and they haven't brought a person into the kingdom for a long, long time. Why is this so important? Because there's a deliverance from sin. It says they were being saved. Saved from what? From eternal damnation in hell and from their sin. We need to understand that the job that we have isn't just to go and try to make some changes in our community, but to deliver people from hell. How does this fit for village? If we want to change the world with our life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ, it must be in our vision. It must be something we're passionate about. I want you to write this down before you put your Bibles away. It took four years for the gospel to reach all of Jerusalem. Four years. It took 18 years, and the New Testament writers say that the world was turned upside down for the gospel. In 28 years, the gospel would be all over the known world. Why? From 120 who were faithful to teaching them, preaching the word of God, it went from there to being spread over all the world. So how do we do it? We have a vision that says we want to accomplish this. Our mission is the following. We live a mission of love. To be a healthy church, Village Bible Church, you must love Jesus to the point of transformation. We must love each other to the point of sacrifice. And we love, must love our neighbors to the point of action. Are you on that mission of love today? It begins there. That is the mark of a healthy church. Let Village live up to it. And let's ask God to do that in spite of ourselves. Father God, we come before you and we thank you that you have saved us. Father, we thank you that you have put us into a body, the body which is the church. Father, we praise you that though we are frailed and we are faulty, that you continue to use us to impact your kingdom. Lord, let that be true of us today. Let that be true for us in the days to come, that we would worship you and adore you, that we would preach and proclaim and teach the foundational truths of God's word, that we would uh, go and, and participate in the fellowship, reaching out, opening our hearts and hands in our homes to one another and reaching the world that is lost in sin. Father, we need your strength to do this. The Spirit at Pentecost came upon the people and they were able to do great and mighty things. Lord, that same Spirit is at work in us and in your church. So Lord, we ask for your Spirit's moving. Convict us of where we need to be convicted. Raise us up where uh, we need to be encouraged. And Lord, allow us to take the steps of faith to make your kingdom the priority, that your church will be preeminent in our lives. It is because it is your bride. It is because it is what you have commanded. And so, Lord, we ask that you will allow it to be true. Send us forth from this place into our daily lives and activities that we may live in glory for you and for your kingdom, that we will live differently so that others will know that you are our God and the Savior of all who will call upon your name. We love you and praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.